Hello again and welcome to today's broadcast of Practically Political, where pragmatists talk politics. I'm Paul Gilbert, sitting in for Dave Spencer, and we have two very special guests today. Michael Steele is the former Republican National Committee Chairman and Maryland Lieutenant Governor, the first African-American elected to statewide office and as head of the NRC. He is a political analyst for MSNBC and has appeared on Meet the Press, Face the Nation, Real Time with Bill Maher, and The Daily Show. He was the co-host of The Steel and Unger Show on Sirius XM's POTUS channel and is now the host of the Man of Steel podcast, where he and his guests discuss key political and cultural issues of the day. Doug Thornell is the managing director of SKD Knickerbocker, a public affairs agency in Washington, D.C., that develops and executes communications strategies and media campaigns for political candidates, major nonprofit organizations, and Fortune 100 companies. He has also served as the Congressional Black Caucus's communications director and is a frequent political analyst on MSNBC, CNN, and the Fox News Channel. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. It's good to be with you, man. Great to be with you. Michael, I'd like to start with you today. You're a self-described Lincoln Republican, and practically political's founder Dave Spencer would call himself a Rockefeller Republican. So seeing what's happening to the party today, it's pretty likely that each of those men would be spinning in their graves. <laughs> Yet while you and Dave are currently estranged from the Republican Party, you both refuse to abandon the GOP. So what's your rationale for staying aboard what seems to be, if not a sinking ship, one that's been hijacked by a renegade pirate and is now lost at sea? Well, I think that's I think that's an apt uh, sort of analogy. I mean, because you, that means you've got passengers on on board who who want to get rid of the pirates. I happen to be one of those passengers, uh, trying to find everything in every way possible to do that. And you know, for me, uh, as I'm sure it is for many uh, Republicans out there, uh, look, we joined the party uh, long before Donald Trump even considered. Uh, you know, being involved in politics, let alone being involved in politics as a Republican. Uh, and so, you know, the, the blood, sweat, equity that's been put into sort of growing the brand, building the party, reaching out, fighting the wars that we fought, um, for me, is still worth it. You know, that fight is still worth it. Uh, and, and this is the analogy I use. If, if you invited me to your home and we sat down for dinner and during the course of the, of the meal, um, I started spitting food all over the place, throwing, uh, throwing your dishes up against the wall, uh, you know, taking the forks to your curtains and ripping up your floorboards. Would you leave your house or would you ask me to leave? And, and that's where I think a lot of us are. Uh, we're not going anywhere. What we're trying to do is get rid of the bad guests um, and, and try to restore the party, which, by the way, has had its struggles, which need to be dealt with for sure. Uh, but you can't deal with those uh, struggles, you know, the difference between republicanism versus conservatism. Are they one and the same? Uh, I would argue they're not. Um, and it's been part of the, the marriage, if you will, going back to the Reagan administration uh, that was forged between the Republican Party, those Northeastern Republicans, if you will, the, the Rockefeller Republicans and the emerging Southern Republicans, uh, evangelical community types, uh, moral majority. We remember them. Uh, and, and they all had this sort of tenuous relationship, which has now been frayed um, and torn asunder by, by uh, both, both time and Trump. So people like you and Dave are there to basically clean up the mess that's being left behind. So 
won't have to. <laughs> so, Doug, I have a question for you. You have a lot of experience working with Democratic officials and candidates. How do you see the internal dynamics of the Democrats' new majority in the House, especially with so many first-time representatives and a much more diverse membership in gender, ethnicity, and political orientation? Well, I think it's going to be a very interesting uh, new Congress. And I'm someone who believes that the leadership uh, fights that we saw this past few couple weeks, particularly around the the speaker position and Nancy Pelosi. I, I thought that was a good thing. I'm a supporter of Nancy Pelosi, but I'm, but I do think it was an important uh, exercise for people within the caucus to express their, their, their goals and concerns. Uh, I think we have a really good mix of veterans and rookies in the leadership. Uh, as you said, we do have a very diverse uh, caucus. You know, we've got, you know, we've got t- ten new uh, veterans and former CIA officials. Uh, you know, we've got. Um, you know, 20 members who are under 40 years old. These are just the people, the folks who won in November. Uh, 33 new women. So there's going to be a lot of, uh, I think, fresh ideas, new ideas, which is good for which is good for the Democratic Party. It's something we have needed, uh, and I think it's going to create a sense of urgency for the for the caucus as well to to get some to get some you know victories on the board. And I think there are going to be you know some areas where we're going to be able to get you know, some things done pretty quickly, and then there's going to be some, you know, areas where I think it's going to run into a brick wall in the Senate, but we'll still be able to get it passed in the House. So whenever we have a change in power, you know, it's a, uh, you know, I think it's a, it's, it's a, um, it's a spark to this town. Michael was there when the Republicans won the House uh, in, um, in, in 2010. He can probably speak to the, you know, the euphoric nature of it. I was there when, um, you know, uh, I was at the DCCC when we added a bunch of seats in 2008 and was involved in the 2006 campaign. So, we, you know, look, a lot, there, a lot of optimism now. You know, clearly it's going to run into some hard realities of just how, you know, um, of, of just how, you know, slow Washington is to work. But I'm optimistic that we're going to get a couple things done. That's about as much as you can expect when you have um, government that is uh, divided. Michael, with a lame duck Congress and a potential government shutdown, if an agreement isn't reached on a spending bill, uh, the economy cooling off and the stock market fluctuating, it seems, on the president's tweets, and especially the looming presence of the Mueller investigation, how would you describe the current mood in Washington and how does this all bode for the rest of 2018 as well as the beginning of 2019? Uh, I think the the current mood in Washington is, is probably best summed up by the word frustration. Uh, I think there's a genuine desire to get some things done uh, for a lot of reasons, but the most important of which is when they go back home on the holidays and, and they're, they're spending the next six weeks or so, uh, you know, talking with their constituents, going to town hall meetings and all the They don't want to hear people complaining to them about what they're not doing. Uh, so they want to be able to point to something, which is one of the great ironies of this last election, where Republicans had a laundry list of things that they could point to to run uh, run on, uh, and they didn't. They didn't talk about taxes. They didn't talk about, uh, you know, the the uh, regulatory reforms that they've made and, and things like that. So that part of it, to me, is a little bit, a bit ironic that folks are are frustrated by the lack of progress on on, on certain fronts. I think the other aspect of this, though, that's in, intriguing uh, to sort of watch the narrative play out going into next year, the ascendancy of Nancy Pelosi, 
um, back to the speakership, how she manages uh, the very tricky uh, space of those progressives uh, in her caucus who are already pushing on things like climate control and, and, and things like that. Um, and want to also move forward on some form of investigation versus those who don't want a lot of investigation, will be how Republicans settle into their new role. Um, it has often struck me that Republicans tend to play uh, the outside dog barking better than the inside dog protecting and, and, and you know, the house, if you will. Um, and so whether or not they now learn from the Democrats how to navigate uh, better uh, in the minority to retake the, the majority at some point and then govern from that will be interesting, uh, an interesting lesson to watch for as well. I, I doubt it because it, I don't think it's ultimately in the nature to do that. But I've talked to some members who are, are kind of hopeful in that vein that next year that we we don't fall into some of the political traps that are likely to be set by the president himself, by the way, um, and um, you know stay focused on holding the Senate in 20, which will be very hard for them to do, uh, and maybe finding a way to get the seats they need to take control of the of the House again. Doug, Michael just mentioned climate change, and that was one issue that got no play in the 2016 election and very little focus in the midterms. How much longer will climate change deniers, uh, particularly the president, be able to get away with burying their heads in the sand on this issue? And looking ahead to 2020, how are you advising your clients to position themselves on climate change? It's a great question. And actually, you know, I don't know how long, much longer climate deniers can get away with it. I mean, the facts are you know, pretty overwhelming out there. We, there was a front-page article in the Washington Post today about how global, global carbon emissions reached a record high in 2018. Uh, you know, there was that report from the, you know, there was a national climate assessment report, the government report from, I think, 12 different government agencies that was released uh, a week or so ago, buried on a Friday, which detailed the consequences of inaction uh, if we don't do anything on, on climate change. Uh, and so, you know, look, we're, the, I think that the, I, I think it's going to be uh, a, uh, an issue that Democrats will talk about, uh, both in this new Congress and also in the, in the presidential campaign. And, and I don't, you know, I, I think that's, I feel like that, that's appropriate. It is, it's a major threat to not only our, the future of this, of the world, but also our, our economy. And so, um, you know, I do think it's going to get much more play and discussion than certainly Republicans in the House gave it. Uh, I expect that, you know, Nancy Pelosi, whether or not there's legislation that's brought up or not, but, you know, that it's going to be something that Democrats talk about, as they should, because it's a, it's a big issue, it's a, and it's a big concern. Obviously, it's probably unlikely that the president's going to sign anything, given his position and his ties to the fossil fuel industry, but uh, hopefully we can send a message that... Uh, you know, this is something that this is a, this is a priority for the country, and we need a president who actually will take some steps to deal with it. I think the appropriate, um, uh, you know, issue around climate change is still uh, appropriate, and, and that is doing doing the, the heavy the heavy lifting that needs to be done by both parties to to get a handle on uh, on the science and and really. Educating the American people. What is what has astounded me on this subject matter um, more than anything else is is the fact that um, 
I think Doug would, would agree with this. Um, the fact that they've used this issue to sort of bludgeon each other over the years and at the expense of educating the American people. And, and so a lot of this is driven by passions as opposed to logic and science, which will tell you what you should be doing. I mean, it's not like you have to, you know, deconstruct the entire economy of the United States in order to begin to address uh, some of the more pressing issues around climate change. Um, and yet you can't even have the conversation. It has become like the gun conversation. Um, and, and every time you raise it, everybody's hair stands up and people retreat to their respective corners. And the scientists are in the middle trying to say, hey, can, look, let me just give you the evidence. <laughs> and, that's, and that's not supported by uh, the members in the House and the Senate um, in any constructive way, I think. So I think, to, to Doug's point, one of the important corners regardless of the number of members who remain from either party who are inclined to support the research, the science, uh, and beginning to take steps to address, uh, you know, climate change uh, both here at home and globally um, will, will require uh, them to be honest about it and to actually force the conversation in an intelligent way. Yeah, and I just just to add one, just to add one thing to what um, uh, Steele said. You know, it's. I think we should all remind ourselves that there was a point in time where this wasn't that partisan of an issue. I mean, right. I remember, I remember Nancy Pelosi and Newt Gingrich, if I recall correctly, did a they did a, a video spot on on. They climate did a number of commercials, together. national commercials, right, on. and. Yeah. Um, and so there, you know, there was a time where, yeah, you had your deniers, but it wasn't as partisan as it has become. And I think, look, I think, you know, uh, that's unfortunate. And I think that, you know, pragmatists in both parties need to, I agree with Michael, the science needs to be better. You know, oftentimes Democrats, you know, sort of just assume that people will go along with us without actually making an argument that is, that, that recognizes people's fears and their concerns about how it might impact their, you know, their 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 you know their lives, and so we do need to, to do a better job of making that argument to folks who are you know right. wondering how is this going to affect the their you know their home heating prices and their you know right. their, exactly. you know just their overall costs at home and what we'll do to certain industries that towns rely on. We de- we definitely need to do a better job of that, uh, but at the same time, I think you also need you know Republicans need to sort of get out of this rabbit hole they're in that which is just sort of constantly denying the science for reasons I don't particularly fully understand and be willing to sort of accept the science maybe put you know but and 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 come to the table as both sides need to be sort of willing negotiators and partners here because it's so much bigger than an election a midterm election in 2018 or even a presidential election quite frankly this is going to impact the entire world unless we do something uh about it, and certainly pulling out of the you know the Paris Accords was not, I think, the right move. And I and it's really unfortunate that the, that the president did that. Well, in some ways, back when this was called global warming, before we got it, the new term climate change, you know, when they're talking about something that's going to happen in 2050, and your grandchildren are affected, I don't think people focus on it quite the same way. And now we're moving up the timetables, and it, it feels like the Maytag repairman: you can pay me now or pay me later. Yeah, yeah, but the the question still remains: How much am I, either now or later, how much am I paying you? Yeah. And I think that that that's been one of the big drivers for 
at least on the Republican side of the argument, uh, particularly when you look back to the Obama administration coming in, talking about cap and trade, talking about um, putting the kinds of restrictions in place that uh, they argued, uh, Republicans argued at the time, would drive up the cost of, of, of you know, industries uh, around the country, and that would then lead to people being laid off, et cetera, et cetera. So there, there was this sort of quasi-economic argument made, but again, it was made the way I opened up my part of this conversation with, you know, extreme prejudice. And, 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 and the folks who were left uneducated and informed um, were left to sort of gravitate to one argument or the other, not really fully understanding and appreciating exactly what, what was meant, where we are, and how do we get from here to there. So we have a lot of work to do in this area. And, it, it, you know, I think it goes to having smart leadership in place who aren't afraid to risk, take the risk of being honest uh, about what it is we're talking about. And Republicans were once the party that advocated for environment, environmental change, uh, environmental support, environmental uh, controls. Hell, we passed the friggin' EPA. We created the EPA in the Dixon, for God's sake. I mean, and then Teddy Roosevelt, the history of the party going back uh, to the turn of the last century, uh, around protecting uh, open spaces and clean air and clean water uh, now seems like a lifetime ago, but it's an argument we need to come back to and make with, the, uh, with Democrats to the American people. All right, so let's move on from the weather report. Uh, Michael, this president has personally attacked and demeaned African-American politicians, and particularly women who stand against him. Without mincing words, do you feel this president is a racist? Well, yeah, he doesn't give me much choice otherwise, does he? Um, it, it, it makes it very hard to um, to get around that that particular point. I mean, I don't. I, I'm very sensitive about calling someone that because I, you know, unless I know you intimately and, and know your history, and it's very obvious, you know, it, I just try to be very careful. I give people the benefit of the doubt, but when you when you approach um, the matter, the subject of race, the way this president has. When you look at uh, how he, he singles and narrows his singles out and narrows his conversation with respect to black women, for example, um, and and African American athletes, um, you know that there's something else driving at. And I think for me, one of the most profound moments was Charlottesville, where instead of looking to heal the nation and to, uh, to raise um, a fist against uh, racism and misogyny and um, uh, anti-Judaism, uh, the president was basically saying, well, there are good people on both sides. Well, I don't understand why everybody's so upset. And to, to, to come at something as sensitive as race to that degree in that way um, leaves me... Um, Believing you don't you don't have the sensibilities as president uh, because you you are anchored in a space that is racist. Um, you are anchored in a space that um, you know is 50 years ago, 60 years ago. Um, America has moved on beyond that, and uh, and that's unfortunate. I think it makes it much more difficult for the country, giving face um, and space to. Uh, 
neo-Nazis and KKK, David Duke, all of that. And when you sit there and go, I don't know who David Duke is, of course you do. Don't, don't sit there and blame me for stupid. Um, and, and yet um, all that just so you can cater to a particular vote to get the fears of white people um, elevated to the point that they go out uh, to vote for um, hate. Uh, because they think that's what you're peddling. When you have members of the KKK and, and neo-Nazism and white nationalists publicly saying uh, the president speaks for them, uh, and he, you know, they they support, you know, his rhetoric. What else are you to believe? If if I'm if I'm looking at them and saying they're racist, how can I not then look at the person who's championing their language, at least parroting their language, that they themselves acknowledge is, you know. Um, is, is sort of a role model for what they're saying and not conclude the same thing. Doug, what about certain state officials and state governments around the country that continue their efforts to repress minority voting? What do their actions say about racial discrimination and inequality in America? Well, it's still prevalent. It still exists. We're not in a post-racial society yet, uh, even though we had an African-American president and you have uh, people like Michael Steele send to extremely high uh, positions, such as running the RNC. But racism still exists, uh, and it's a uh, and it and it and it um, you know it it shows up in corporate boardrooms. It shows up on the Hill. It shows up on campaigns. And you know we saw examples of this during this past election when you know you had the the Secretary of the state of the state of Georgia. Um, you know you had him. Uh, uh, purge about 300,000 uh, voters from the voting roll. And, you know, he was running for governor, too, so there was that issue as well. Um, you had other examples. You were looking at a race in North Carolina District 9 right now, which hasn't been called yet, where there's uh, allegations that, uh, you know, Republicans also um, uh, 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 broke voting, voting rules to, to suppress the vote. Racism still is a part of you know everyday life, and it rears its head, and it impacts uh, uh, voting uh, every election. And I, I would say this: it's not just a racism issue. You know, when you have uh, voting ID, very, very, very restrictive voting ID laws that uh, also disproportionately impact uh, veterans, seniors, and young people as well. So it's not just a race issue. I think in this country. Voting should be as easy as possible, and I think we've we've come, we've come some ways to make you know things like early vote more uh, you know uh, in some states um, uh, early vote a reality. Florida had early vote for um, uh, you know uh, a number of days. You're seeing it in other you know other states. I think that's a welcome uh, a, a, a welcome step. I believe in automatic voter registration when you turn to 18. Uh, and there's a number of other things that we should be able to do to make voting as easy as possible so that if you live in rural Alabama or, or you know, rural F- Florida or Virginia, it's, it's very easy for you to vote, as easy as it is if you lived in uh, Chica- Chicago or, or Washington, D.C. or New York City. I think voting should be very easy. I don't understand why it's so hard for people to, um, you know, get, to, you know, get, get, um, get around to supporting that view because it's not just Democrats who are hurt, although the majority, you know, disproportionate number of people of color are impacted. You have other folks who are impacted as well, and I think that's a shame. I've been a, a radical in this space for a while, and, and when I was RNC chairman, uh, the, the previous convention had charged um, 
the next chairman of the party, which happened to be me, to look at our primary process and to look at ways which we could begin to streamline and um, make the uh, the process more efficient and accessible. Uh, and of course, that for me was an open door. So I go into into these meetings after I set up this commission um, as required by the convention, uh, and I'm in there talking about, okay, so why don't we propose um, election day as a national holiday? So uh, we incentivize people that way. Number two, I do like the idea suggested. All right, so if you don't want to make it a national holiday, let's have it start from you know sundown Friday to you know uh, sundown on Monday. You know, make it a weekend opportunity to get as many people uh, involved as possible. Expand early voting as much as possible. Look at ways in which we can, at one, on the one hand, secure the vote, but also use technology to expand the vote, to give people greater access to the opportunity um, to vote. I even would be support the idea of moving it from November. Why we vote in pitch dark in the cold, I don't know. We can move it to the spring, uh, you know, uh, late May, early June. Uh, and, and, and there are any number of things that if we put together our collective will, um, we could do to expand the uh, access to, to the ballot box. The reason that does not happen, and it's a pox in both Democrats and Republican uh, houses for this, is that at the end of the day, I firmly believe, having been on the inside, I know Doug may not agree with this, uh, they like it this way. Uh, the idea of every citizen voting is an anathema to both parties because they can't control that. They don't know what that outcome is. And if you want proof of that, I take you to 2016. Uh, the problem with 2016 was not so much, was as much Donald Trump winning is how he won. Voters that both parties had no idea would come out, had no idea how they would vote, and had no control over that process. Um, so as much as we talk about our advancement, you know, we've moved away from this sort of uh, paternalistic patrician-oriented um, uh, voting system where only landed gentry white men could vote. Uh, the political parties have in many respects stood in the place of those white men and control, still control how that vote uh, plays itself out. And we see it now in Wisconsin and Michigan where Republicans who got their clocks clean are now trying to uh, counterman that vote uh, legislatively. Same thing the Democrats did when Scott Walker first came uh, into office in um, 2009, 2010, rather. Um, same, same sort of narrative puts the script as flipped. And that's because both parties look at these outcomes sometimes uh, and they project who should win. You know, we've done the numbers. We've run the numbers. We've, we've figured out where our vote's coming from. And when it comes from someplace else, that drives them nuts. So the more I'm totally with Doug, the more we open this up, uh, the more we educate and inform the population. I hate ignorant voters. I hate them. People take responsibility, learn the issues, learn the candidates, stop this blind, dumb-behind voting. Just because your mom and your daddy was a D or an R doesn't mean you've got to vote that way today because the stakes are too high. Michael, I want to switch gears for a second and talk about a politician who I think has done more damage in this country than in recent history that many preceding him, and that would be Mitch McConnell. His GOP platform during the Obama administration was mostly based on obstructionism, 
And now, given the chance to lead during the last two years, all he can show is an abominable tax bill and a Supreme Court seat which was actually stolen from Merrick Garland. How do you think history will remember Mitch McConnell? Mitch McConnell knows how to play the game. I'm sorry. Uh, He told Harry Reid how this was going to turn out, and it turned out exactly as he told Harry Reid it would. Harry Reid made made the critical choices, I think, as, as, as a matter of politics, um, you know, going back to um, uh, the, using the nuclear option on a federal judgeship uh, at the time when McConnell said, if you do this, you will pay a price for it. Uh, that's, where this, that's where this space began. And we can take it, you know, on judgeships going all the way, you know, you talk about, you know, Merrick Garland, we talk about uh, Judge uh, Robert Bork. Uh, when Senator Kennedy stood on the on the Senate floor and and you know just harangued this this, this particular nominee, so the, the the judgeship is one particular piece of a bigger pie uh, of how politics is wielded and used in the United States Senate. I think now the Senate is no different than the House. You've taken away the sixty the filibuster rule. Um, so what the hell's the point? You don't need 60 votes on very important, critical things like Supreme Court nominees and the like. Um, so, look, McConnell played the game, and the Democrats clearly didn't know how to, and they got outmaneuvered and outfoxed uh, after being warned in many respects. Now, I'm not saying that that's a good thing, and history may judge McConnell and Republicans very critically, um, but the fact of the matter is, Beneath the, all the policy and the legislation is a political strategy, um, and I, you know, was not a fan of the strategy that McConnell took in not working with Barack Obama at all. I thought that ill-served the country. I thought it was just bad politics, um, and I thought that we could amass some wins with this president. Um, as we saw back with uh, Newt Gingrich and, and Bill Clinton, even in the midst of, of impeaching Bill Clinton, um, Republicans were able to work with Democrats to get uh, a balanced budget, to get welfare reform, to um, you know uh, address tax uh, tax issues. So it clearly says to me that the politics became the more dominant play. Uh, and McConnell was just at, was just better at playing it. Can I just say one thing on McConnell? Um, because you know, look, he 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 started off the Obama administration saying that you know that his number one priority was to make Obama a one-term president, and um, and I think that poisoned the well immediately. And he's actually not even that popular within the Republican Party. If you look at a lot no, of polls, not. there are a lot of he's, <laughs> no, he's, he's, he's actually right. pretty unpopular there. He's one of the most deeply unpopular politicians in the country. Um, and I think he also happens to be a real hypocrite on a range of issues. But to uh, there, but to uh, Michael's uh, point, you know, he's a you know he's a tactician. He knows the Senate rules. I think he, you know, he's he has um, you know he is uh, he has used them to his advantage at times. But he also, quite frankly, there were you know there were a number of um, you know he had a number of major defeats this past you know the the, the past two years sure. that cost. Republicans at the um, at the I, I think at the at the polls and uh, and this was one of the most I think dysfunctional um, uh, chaotic Congresses that we've seen in a long time and Mitch McConnell has some responsibility over that. 
not just I, President I, Trump, although a lot of it is. On a more positive note, I always like to end on a positive note. <laughs> we always ask our guests one final question. Even in such a dysfunctional and divisive time in national politics, what gives you hope for the future? Why don't we start with Doug? Uh, what gives me hope? Well, what gives me hope is what happened in, during the midterm elections, and that is, you know, we saw the greatest participation in a midterm in it, maybe ever, or at least in certainly uh, decades. Uh, we had a significant turnout of young voters, of people of color, of women, uh, you know, and it was across the board. It was all over the country. And that was encouraging because, you know, oftentimes midterms are forgotten about and people, you know, uh, people sleep on them and they don't, they don't want to get out there. And it was encouraging to me to see this type of activity uh, and this interest in the midterm elections. And hopefully that translates into, um, you know, greater participation in the presidential election in 2020. Uh, and, and also, I, I think we've also seen over the, cor- over the course of the last, you know, two years, a lot of, act, you know, whether it's the Women's March or um, those, those valiant, brave kids uh, in Florida who've been uh, advocating for uh, gun control, uh, you know, I, I feel like there is something going on here in terms of, you know, young people who don't feel like they have a voice but are really sort of stepping forward and breaking through those glass ceilings and sort of making their voice heard. I, I really think that's encouraging, uh, and I think it's – and hopefully it continues to build. Michael, what gives you hope for the future? Three words. We the people. Because at the end of the day, this country, this great experiment exists because we do because we're here. Um, And all of our stories are very different in terms of how we got here, why we're still here, and all of that. Um, But at the core of it is this this crazy idea that there could be a place on this planet where you could come and just be yourself and do you and grow and expand or just stay at home and watch TV. You know, he... Whatever your options were or are, you have, you have the freedom to choose them. And, and I, I think that's one of the great strengths of this country. It was reflected in the life of uh, the president we just buried, George Herbert Walker Bush, um, who as a young man um, uh, stood up for his country, went to war on her behalf, uh, came back home, uh, and, and just just wanted to settle down and raise a family uh, and, and, and tried his best uh, to do that, but then was called to something greater than himself. Uh, and I think that's what this country pulls at each one of us, uh, calling to something greater than, our, than ourselves. Donald Trump notwithstanding, yes, you have those folks who are self-absorbed and self-consumed and don't give a rat behind about anyone other than themselves. Um, and every once in a while, they slip through the cracks and emerge the, into the space we have now. But we quickly close those, those gaps, uh, and we rally around this country. Uh, and, I, and I think to Doug's point, we saw that this election cycle. Um, and, and in many respects, the American people began to answer for me two questions I asked on the eve of the November election. The first was, what kind of country do you want? And the second was, what kind of leaders do you want to lead that country? And I think that, for me, is the power of, of this moment, 
uh, and moments into the future is that we will ultimately get to decide the kind of country we want and the kind of leaders we want to lead it. Uh, and um, that gives me hope. So I want to sneak in one last question about optimism. We're all big sports fans. What are your hopes for the future for the Wizards, the Nationals, and the Redskins looking ahead? <laughs> you trying oh, to make us? You trying to punish us here? <laughs> I swear, you don't make them. You thought, I, I thought you said you want to go out on a good note. Why are you? Why are you bringing up? <laughs> I said hopes. I didn't say uh, <laughs> forecast. I said hopes. <laughs> well, there is here's my hope. hope. There My hope is that the Redskins get a new owner, uh, that the Nats re-sign um, uh, Bryce Harper, uh, that the Wizards get their act together and make a run at the playoffs, and that we defend the uh, Stanley Cup. Michael? I like all of those hopes. My, my, my hope is that the fans stay true and, and recognize that, um, you know, these teams – uh, are a reflection of us, our trials and tribulations, ups and downs, um, and you don't walk away from family. So I, I'm there with them regardless of the owner, regardless of the win record, um, because I know uh, they need me as much as I need them. Uh, guys, I don't know about this MSNBC stuff anymore. It sounds like uh, you're ready for ESPN. <laughs> Well, that wraps up a most insightful conversation with two veteran Washington insiders, Michael Steele, MSNBC political analyst, former Republican National Committee chairman, and Maryland Lieutenant Governor, and now the host of the Man of Steel podcast. And Doug Thornell, Managing Director of SKD Knickerbocker, a public affairs agency in Washington, D.C., and a frequent political analyst on MSNBC, CNN, and Fox News Channel. Gentlemen, thanks so much for appearing on the show. Real pleasure. Thank you. A lot of fun. So that's it for today. Dave Spencer will be back for our next round of Practically Political, where we go beyond the deluge of everyday news to dive deeper into American politics. You can also visit us at practicallypolitical.com and follow us on Facebook and at PractPolit. I'm Paul Gilbert. Have a great week.